the biggest mistake that a lot of traditional media companies made is when something when they saw success and a lot of clicks on something they were like got it let's move in that direction let's cover that more in 2016 donald trump had a two percent chance of winning but he was over covered for a candidate that only had a two percent chance of winning and that is because every media organization saw oh shit like people are clicking on this they love this they Everything you put Donald Trump in the headline, you knew it was going to pop. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I interview really amazing people. We interview entrepreneurs, investors, creators, internet entrepreneurs, crypto thought leaders. Um, and today we have on another amazing person, Polina Marinova Pompliano. Polina is an awesome writer. She worked for quite a long time at Fortune Magazine pretty you know, well-to-do magazine based in New York, where she wrote a column called Term Sheet for a very long time. And then on the side, starting about three years ago, she started writing her own newsletter called The Profile, which profiles, if you can believe it, really amazing people. Some of the most amazing people alive today and some of the most amazing people alive in history. What really caught our attention was her incredible profile of the one and only Nick Saban, which shows her ability to be an objective journalist as she's a University of Georgia graduate. So that shows the credibility of Polina to, to stay neutral when discussing these topics. She's an incredible writer. She writes the best life lessons, best business lessons, best relationship lessons, everything that's important to learn from the very best people who have been successful in that thing in history. And we interview her in this episode to talk about the best lessons from all those profiles, the actual business model of how she transitioned from working for Fortune to working for herself with premium subscriptions at the profile. And we also discuss her first angel investment, the future of media, future of online education, and so much more. I'm excited for you to listen to this episode. I hope you learn as much as we did. Enjoy. Polina, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Uh, th thank you so much. Uh, first question I have for you, I figured it would be one that's energizing because it's so recent, is you announced that you made your first angel investment in a really interesting education ed, ed tech startup. Can you tell us what was the company, why you're motivated to invest and kind of the story there? Yeah, it, it is very surreal for me because I spent, you know, uh, two years at Fortune Magazine writing Term Sheet, which is the daily new, uh, deal-making newsletter. And to see that the deal was in it today uh, with my name as an investor and not as the writer, like blew my mind. Uh, but it's called Synthesis and um, the team is very impressive. I first got to know it because when we came to Miami, I met um, a woman named Ana Lorena Fabrega and she is their like chief evangelist, but she's a former teacher and she is now uh, kind of part of this company that um, it's not a full school. It was they the inspiration came from Ad Astro, which was the school that Elon Musk created for his own kids at SpaceX. Um, but one of the co-founders was the main instructor teacher there. Um, so he created this it created synthesis with the idea that it would be an enrichment um, uh, like class in addition to traditional school. And it is literally kids get on Zoom and they solve these really, really complex problems together. Um, 
and, and they're all virtual games. One of them uh, is called Art for All. So kids need to learn how to like purchase art and negotiate and all these problems come up. But it's just really, really cool. They call these like magic moments where you can watch the kids in action. And um, you see a 12 year old being like, well, I think Kyle should be the leader here because Kyle is really, really good under pressure. And I'm not good under pressure. We only have 11 minutes left. So let's let Kyle like take, uh, take the reins here. So it's like, it's, it's a level of maturity. It shows you that kids actually crave complexity and traditional school kind of um, uh, tries to, to water things down in order for 30 kids in the classroom to understand it. This is kind of the opposite. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about it. Yeah, I listened to that um, student interview, I think that you're referencing, where he was, was just a little kid and he's like, well, I know that uh, Jimmy is really, really good at, under pressure and it, he makes really good decisions. And it was just so interesting to hear him work through how his team solved this complex problem. Um, but yes. do you think that Synthesis in the future is going to begin to do in-person uh, rather than virtual um, instruction? Yeah, uh, I'm optimistic about whatever the team decides and whatever direction they decide to go in. I think COVID accelerated a lot of trends that were already underway. One of them being remote uh, learning, remote education. The thing that's actually cool about this being remote and not in person right now is that you're able to pay our kids from all sorts of different geographic locations, backgrounds, et cetera, not just the kids that live in my neighborhood. Um, so I like that aspect of it, but it'll probably be a mix. Well, that is a very exciting investment. And I've also mm -hmm. been following Anna on Twitter and seeing kind of a lot of the hype around it. So it's very cool that you got involved in. We'll have to stay in the know and, uh, do some follow-up interviews later on about with whether Anna, whoever else, cause it does sound like a very cool, impactful project. Uh, but what we wanted to interview about before this recent development that happens in the time between us scheduling this and this conversation, uh, <laughs> is the business you have that kind of enabled you to have a seat at the table. Uh, for this project, which is your ongoing newsletter, The Profile. Can you tell us the when and why and motivation for starting The Profile and kind of the, at the outset, what you hope to achieve by doing it? Yes. So I think everybody's always like, oh, you know, you started The Profile with the idea that it would eventually be a business or be something profitable that you quit your full-time job for. That was never even in the vicinity of where my uh, mind was at at the time. It was in 2017 in February when I started it. And I started it because frankly, I was a little bored at what I was doing at Fortune at the time. It was pre, it was before. So I started writing Term Sheet, which is a daily newsletter at Fortune in August of 2017. I started the profile in February of 2017. And at the time, like I had time. I had time in the evenings and on weekends to do this thing. Um, but basically I was like, you know, I'm not, I didn't feel like very fulfilled by the things that I was writing. So um, I really loved long form journalism and long form profiles. And my idea was I'm just gonna put together an email, send it to family and friends and uh, just discuss, kind of as a conversation starter almost, um, discuss these like really interesting stories that I read every week. Cause I was already doing that, but I was doing it on Slack with my coworkers or over text with my friends. So I just kind of professionalized it. At the time, email newsletters weren't like a, a thing or like people weren't, certainly weren't quitting their jobs to work on newsletters. Paid newsletters weren't really around. I think Substack started around that time, but they didn't really, really start until later. Um, so I was, I was just doing that. And 
in terms of like to bring it back to synthesis and learning, I genuinely believe that different people learn in different ways. I've always learned best through people's experiences and trying to put myself in different people's shoes. So for example, in college or in high school, when we were talking about the French Revolution, the teacher could sit there all day and tell me about the facts of the French Revolution and I could not remember it, like for the life of me. But what I would do in my spare time to actually learn is I would find the key player. So like Marie Antoinette and try to learn and study her life and in her life in the context of what was going on at the time and why people were so angry and why she got executed, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, it allowed me to form an emotional connection with the person, which therefore triggered my memory and I could remember it. So um, it, people are like, oh, why the profile? Like, how did you come up with the idea? It's genuinely how I learn. And so when I started it, um, at, while I was at Fortune, when I started as just like this email, it was really cool because I can still remember certain things and, and be like, oh, that person did those things because of the incentives they had and the motivations they had and how they saw the world. And it just makes more sense to me. Yeah. When you're talking on one of the podcasts I listened to of you uh, in research for this, you're saying how, you know, you don't pick the person to do the mm. um, to do the profile. You pick what you want to learn about. And I think that's very self-aware and interesting that you realize that that's how you learn. When um, was it that you figured that out about yourself? Um, so I, I really did. I took um, AP European history in uh, high school. And that was the one where I, history was so hard for me. But once I realized that people were at the center of history um, and I could kind of learn their stories, uh, it all clicked. And then I also worked on the high school newspaper and I wrote a profile on one of the swimmers and how his family was like, you shouldn't swim, this is stupid. And he like won the state championship. So um, it, like, I, I, I realized that I really, I just liked people's stories and I was really, uh, I gravitated towards that. So then when I started working at Fortune, I noticed that I was attracted to the people at Fortune who wrote long form profiles. And the queen of that was Patty Sellers. And she has like literally profiled every single uh, CEO in America that matters. And I went and read all her stories. My first story for Fortune was a profile um, on an Olympic ice skater who works at Google. So I don't know, I just kind of like fell into that world and I've always liked people. I genuinely enjoy people's stories and I like the complicated characters much more than the just, you know, linear path of success. <laughs> That's very interesting. And I think, you know, what you're saying is that you chose your content diet to be people because that's how you learn. But why do you think that content diet is important and why is one of your goals with the profile to improve other people's content diets? Yeah, um, so I think that a lot of people are very aspirational in how they say they spend their days, but very few, um, very few people's aspirations actually match reality. So for example, if I sit here and I tell you, yeah, I, um, I only read profiles and I only read textbooks and whatever and I watch no junk, but then you see me at home watching an hour of the Kardashians, it's like, wait a second, well, what about that? I think a lot of us are just like, it, it, because it's part of my routine, I don't even think about it. 
I think that it matters to sit down and do like a content audit of your day. So sit down for two days and just like hour by hour, minute by minute list what you actually do and see if that matches your aspirations for what you want your content diet to be. Um, Louis, I think it was you. I was reading something where you did like an experiment where you stopped reading mainstream media for a year, maybe. No, I, I can't even tell you the last time I consumed mainstream media on purpose. I okay. mean, some, you know, people send you an article here or there, but like, I've been pretty much all of college just out of the mainstream media loop. Okay, I thought I read that somewhere, but but I thought that was interesting because like it actually it um, moves you away from uh, automatic habits and, and makes you much more intentional about what you consume. So, for example, people who are vegetarian are much more aware of what they're putting in their body because they have to be selective about what they eat. I think it's the same with a content diet. Like, if I know I'm, I'm going to go to the original source, I'm not going to trust what CNN or Fox is telling me, you become much more intentional about what you consume. And um, it's David Brooks who said that you were defined by the, uh, it's the theory of maximum taste. And he says, you're defined by the upper limit of what you consume. So basically if I only watch and read junk, that's what I'm going to think. And that is how what the conversations I will have, they'll be very superficial. They'll be very like surface level. But if I, force myself to read hard things, which we all did in college, we were forced to do it. Nobody's forcing you after you graduate. Um, and if you're not forced, that kind of falls. And that's why he says, why do you, why is it that you meet people in their thirties who are much, much less interesting than people who are in their twenties? It's because they've like stooped to a much lower level um, of taste. I think that one thing that we're all fortunate enough to have is some forcing function, right? Something that the profile for you makes it so every week you have to do a lot of high quality research and high quality yes. thinking. So that even if you were, let's say lazy and undisciplined in all of your other consumption, at minimum, you were doing this research. Yes. And if Kyle and I, this was our only conversation this week, like at the very minimum, we That's had to point. do some good reading for this and the actual conversation itself and the editing. So I think for a lot of people finding some way to at least force like, even just reading one good per, one good book per week is like a good way to yeah. ensure there's some upper some good upper limit and it doesn't have to be a textbook uh totally yeah i want to ask now a little bit about the growth of the profile so obviously three years is a long time and that's three years well it's four years i did my math wrong that's three years longer <laughs> than uh we've been doing the podcast so tell us a little bit about like what the reception was at the beginning because you know it's very easy for you to tell the story now being successful and having large readership but was it dead silence for two years and then a slow all of a sudden people came out of nowhere or like what was that process like for you of how much you started with and the pace in which you accumulated an audience. Yes, it is crazy now to look back. Like, um, it took me two years, two full years to get to 5,000 subscribers. And I think I had like 7,000 in the last month, which is crazy. Uh, like added 7,000 new ones in the last month, not total 7,000. Uh, but it, it just, it compounds, right? So I think that in the beginning, it's literally one foot in front of the other. And I also wasn't necessarily looking to grow it in the same way that I am now. Um, in the beginning, I genuinely thought it was for my family and friends and coworkers. And that's what I thought was how I define success. Um, the first, I, I still remember the first person, they were at a VC firm who signed up 
who I didn't know because I used to get a notification for every single person who signed up. I was like, I don't know that email. <laughs> and um, there's something about, like I always say, you're not really a writer until you write publicly and you open yourself up to criticism. Um, because when the profile was terrible in the beginning, like you can look it up on Tiny Letter, the first edition sucked. It's, I mean, the, the content was good, the, the articles that I was recommending were good, but the actual format and the voice and the tone and everything was bad. Um, but some people saw through that with me and they're like, oh, okay, I actually like what she's curating, so I'm gonna stick around. The second that somebody else who outside of my inner circle signed up, I started to really care. And I started to care in a way where I felt a responsibility to show up every Sunday. And that public accountability, like if I, I hear people all the time, they're like, oh, um, you know, like I really wanna do a newsletter, but I'm not sure I'll be consistent with it. If you don't, like if when you start writing publicly and when people start subscribing and when they start relying on you and trusting on you that this thing will be in their email week after week, you, I think intrinsically begin to feel some accountability to those people. I accidentally scheduled it for the wrong day once, so it didn't show up on time at 7.03 a.m. on a Sunday. And I woke up at like nine or 10. And when I opened my email, people were like, are you okay? Did something happen? Why did this thing not go out? And when you get that, you're like, holy shit. Like I actually need to, I, I am, um, accountable to these people and they expect something of me. And I, I do think like when it's the same thing with kids, when you expect more, they rise to the level of uh, your expectations. So to me, it's never even been a question of, oh, I'm not gonna send it this week. The consistency kind of compounded over time because as more people signed up, I felt an increasing level of responsibility. Yeah, I love that. and. Um... Those numbers that you said are insane. One month to 7,000, two years to 5,000. And uh, I, I think that Lewis and I feel the exact same way about this podcast. You know, obviously we're, we're sending it out to a smaller audience, but, um, you know, come Tuesday, pretty much hell or high water, we're going to get an episode out. Um, and that's and with every additional episode that we do, like the streak is building and building. And if we mess up, it's like, there goes that entire amount of compounding time. But one question that I wanted to ask you is how do you feel about fame? Because I know that, you know, you and, and Pomp have had a huge year in terms of just pure numbers. And I'm sure you're at the point where you're getting recognized every once in a while on the street, at least. What do you think about, about fame and, and I guess the dangers of it and um, where your head's at with that? Um, so, Okay, so this is actually a very interesting question because I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, I am a very private person. I think a lot of people feel like they know me because I'm in their inbox every week or I do podcasts or I'm on Twitter, um, but they, they don't actually know me. I think every single person, everything they do publicly, some of it is somewhat performative mm. and you're it's appealing an to us. Exactly, exactly. But I think that... so. I was thinking about this because I was rereading my uh, dossier of Dolly Parton. Everybody thinks that they know her, that she's so authentic and all this stuff. And it's all a mask. She, in her private life, is I'm sure so much different than she is publicly. And I read interviews with people who know her very well and they're like, she is a performer. And just because you see her, you know, giving interviews and whatever, that's a performance. 
I recently watched an interview with Al Pacino uh, where he was giving an interview and the interviewer asked him, what is acting to you? And he goes, what we're doing right now. <laughs> like, it's, I think a lot of these people, I think a lot of these people don't, um, they separate it, right? And I think if you're good at compartmentalizing things, it's actually easier. Uh, I am like this in real life. Like, I'm not like a completely different person, but there are aspects of like what's going on in my private life people will never know. Um, that's mm -hmm. why I think like, for example, the Bill and Melinda divorce, uh, so many people felt like they knew their relationship because of the interviews they had given publicly. But again, nobody knows what's going on behind closed doors. And I think for me, privacy is so important because uh, it's like the one thing you always have, right? No matter how successful or well-known people you think you are, um, that's, that's the one thing that you have for yourself. I could see that making sense as a shared value with obviously your husband being a big advocate of cryptocurrency, the, <laughs> the desire for privacy being an, an essential ingredient of the family life. Uh, I want to ask you on one thing we brought up a little bit earlier. Uh, specifically, I asked a friend who was connected with you on LinkedIn. Then he said he didn't actually know you, but he was just a fan. Uh, so I was trying to, if I see a connection, try to oh, let that person LinkedIn. ask a question. Yeah. <laughs> but he uh, asked me, specifically what you think the future of long form journalism is in, because you, you mentioned specifically that you have love, not just for writing, which a lot of people say is kind of a generic thing to say, oh, I love writing, but like you have the specific craft that you've been consistent with for, for years and years and years. So what do you think is the future of that with diminishing attention spans and the rise of kind of competitive forms of media? Okay. So I refuse to believe all the articles that are written with all the research that has been done about how millennials and Gen Z have really short attention spans. They can't pay attention. They don't like long form. Joe Rogan, top podcast in the world. That's freaking two to four hour, uh, two to four hour podcast episodes and people listen and they complete it and they are our demographic and our generation. I think, I think it's just silly. Um, all those things are very silly. And I think what we're going to have to do is it's going to long form profiles is going to have to be redefined and it hasn't been redefined for a very long time. It's always like when I say long form profile, you picture, uh, words on a page with a picture and a video, maybe if it's on the website or if it's in a magazine or a newspaper or whatever, um, in the future though. I think there's going to be a lot of room to change the way people think about profiles. Like who's to say that what we're doing right now isn't a profile of me. It very well might be. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more multimedia elements to it, but not in the traditional sense of like a New York times profile where you have a headline, a subhead, you have your lead, you have a photo, you have an, an anecdote about the person and then quotes uh interspersed throughout but the majority is the it's um it's the person's observate it's the reporter's observation of you as a person and i think my favorite example of a long-form profile that nobody like really considers a profile is what brandon stanton of humans of new york did with tinkeray mm -hmm. um this woman where he told her story across multiple photo series on Facebook in her own words. I mean, that was, that was a better profile than some of the long form stuff I read in New York magazine. Um, but 
it's it's not a traditional profile. So I think it's it's really going to change, and I think the future is just it's going to be very much more hearing it from the person themselves versus going through a, a, a like a middleman. Seems to be a theme with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Cutting out the middleman yeah. for sure. Um, so can you briefly define profile? The just profile? The word, like, no, not oh. the profile, but a profile. <laughs> like, I, I know it takes many forms, but to you, is it like just a, a an explanation of one piece of of me? Or I know, I mean, I've read yours. So like, I know, I guess it's like an amalgamation of who this person is. But can you just define it, I guess? Yeah, to me, a really great profile um, gets to the essence of the person through showing you who they are and how they act in certain situations that I, the reader, would never get anywhere else. So the best Mm. profiles that I really love aren't the ones where, Kyle, like I walk in and I interview you sitting across from a desk. It's the ones Mm -hmm. where you and I can go to the amusement park and I can see like how you treat people there or when you get Mm -hmm. recognized on the street, how do you react? It's um, putting people in different types of situations to understand their character. The most masterful um, people do that. Uh, and, And a lot of times like, a lot of times the problem with journalism today is that If I'm out here, if I'm a celebrity promoting my movie, I'm not gonna give the reporter an entire day to spend with me. I'm giving them at most an hour. It's very hard to write a really great profile from an hour of of material with someone and experiences with someone. Although you can do something really, really great by interviewing family, friends, strangers on LinkedIn, like people who are in that person's world and their circle and their universe. Mm to understand what their character is and to understand the motivations. Like, I mean, for a profile, I've interviewed like 27 people for one person, but I interviewed their coworkers. I've interviewed people they fired. I've interviewed their bosses, uh, their high school basketball coaches. I wanted people from all, like, all, all segments of their life to tell me what type of person they were then, who they are now, how they feel. And, and, the best reporters can um, understand understand incentives. Sometimes you see today, like two people said this person is so and so, and then you realize the two anonymous sources are people they fired. Like those are maybe not the best, most unbiased sources to interview. I don't know if that answers like, your question. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It's and you're really getting at like the essence piece of it, like bringing above the water what's between the lines, and like what isn't explicitly stated and, and like with Elon Musk, that would be the way he looks at humans, like the software uh, right. and hardware elements and like how that works. So I think that that's um, a really interesting, um, really interesting answer. I, I, it brings to mind this one TikTok account. Uh, this will be short uh, called. Are you happy? <laughs> I don't I don't get on TikTok a lot, but when I do, I like to Wait, follow. Tell me about uh, this. <laughs> It's called Are You Happy? And um, I think that's the full like name of it is A-R-E, Are You Happy? Um, and the only question he asks people is, are you happy? And it breaks down that person's face from, uh, from being rigid, like, why are you talking to me? And it just melts them. And it, it really does what you're saying, where it, it like brings above the water what's between the lines. And they, they 
um, just express themselves in a way that's so interesting to me. And it just, you can scroll on this feed forever and it's just like over and over again, people's just melting and like smiling really big or, or starting to cry or it, it's amazing. Um, I'm going to check so this out. That sounds amazing. When you say that, <laughs> yeah, do it for sure. Um, yeah, and, I, and I think ch- part, part, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of our internets jumped out. What were you about to say? I, I was just going to say, I think one of the, the uh, really cool techniques that I, for example, use is I can't, if I spend an hour with you, I don't know what you are like when somebody insults you and you feel offended, right? So I might try to get that, um, out of you to understand how you react when I say, well, you know, I spoke with someone who said that you as a boss were very kind of, uh, um, over the top and you would get angry very fast. Like, how do you respond to that? And then just by observing your reaction and your body language and are you getting defensive or are you like, you know what, like I take responsibility for the things that I've done. I can tell a lot about how you react in those situations without actually putting you in that situation. I think this is very consistent with what you said earlier about performance and it's Mm -hmm. what you're doing as an interviewer and as a journalist is getting the story behind the, like you're getting past performance because that's the only way you get to like the actual true story. But we've been building up a lot of hype around a lot of these profiles. So I figured we could transition now to asking you about some of them and kind of seeing some of the lessons that are fun to share some, some of the prominent more ones that stood out to us. The low hanging fruit for myself and Kyle is Nick Saban. (laughs) Uh, the football Ooh. coach at Alabama. What is the big one or two lessons or the the inspiration for writing about Nick Saban and the takeaways for people should learn from, from that piece? Okay, so Saban is a perfect example of somebody who uh, I think feels like they're misunderstood in the public eye where um, if you read his full story and you get to uh, his upbringing and his dad and like how he was raised you understand a lot more about Nick Saban than you hear like he's the devil and he's the whatever. Um, so I think angel. one of the things, yeah, yeah that's, I've never heard those words. Yeah. Uh-oh. He's worshiped. He's, yeah, he's... Oh man. You, you guys are lucky. I don't care about football. Cause like I would be crucified if a UGA fan is listening to this, but I really like Nick Saban. Um, and I like him because I, like I told you, I really like people with a complicated life and um, who, who pe- most people misunderstand. I think that Nick Saban, one of his superpowers that a lot of people don't have is he's able to look at all three of us and say, Paulina, you're motivated by this one thing. So I'm going to use that to motivate you in the future. Lois, you're motivated by, motivated by this other thing that's totally the opposite of Paulina. And I'm going to use that to push your buttons and motivate you in the future. And Kyle, like you may kind of be lazy, but like, I know that if I get up in there and I kind of like offend you a little bit, you'll, I I can push you um, to perform at your best. So the best coaches understand this. And and I think um, when it's a really big team, a lot of people can get lost, but I think he sees a big team and he also sees the individual and he learns the individuals like ticks and like what makes them like kind of like cringe and what makes them like get really fired up. So he's able to use that. The other thing is the, um, the process over the outcome mentality. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that Netflix special, uh, on Monica Aldama, uh, from, she's a cheerleading coach, uh, somewhere in like, is it Texas? It was, it was somewhere, and she's called the Nick Saban of cheerleading. 
she uses the same thing, process over outcome, where uh, I think Nick Saban says, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's, uh, don't look at the scoreboard, play the next play. I think that's an exact quote, actually. <laughs> but um, basically, stop getting, um, stop getting um, distracted by the results. Like, if you do exactly what you're supposed to do in that moment, we're going to function like a well-oiled machine, and, and it's gonna, we're going to move as a unit. And I always, always think about that when I get overwhelmed with the profile and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. What is my goal? How do I get to this number? What do I do in the next three months? And then I'm like, all right, hold on. <laughs> you need to like start reading these profiles because this, you're like building up to that, but you can't build up to that without doing the everyday process of it. Um, I, so yeah, those are, those are two things that I, I learned from him. Love Nick Saban. Uh... In that vein, though, when you say you need, you need to read the profile, what um, techniques to try have you applied to your own life that have had outsized impacts um, on your day-to-day? -day? The biggest one is uh, Samuel Adams founder, Jim Cook. Uh, I did his profile dossier at a time in my life where it was the perfect time. Uh, but I've, I've thought about his words like, literally every time I have to make a decision, but basically he, um, his story is that he was making really good money working at uh, Boston Consulting Group, which is a nice cushy corporate job, but he was bored out of his mind and he had a family already. Like he had been working there for years. So he was like, I, I don't know. Like if I leave, like that's kind of a, that's really risky. And he really wanted to start this like small brewery. Uh, he was like, I don't really know anything about beer, but like, this is my dream. And then when he was weighing the decision, should I quit BCG to do this crazy risky thing or should I stay and make really good money and support my family forever? Like, what do I do? Um, he asked himself the question, uh, is this dangerous or is this scary? And I always think about that in decision-making, the difference between dangerous and scary, which is that scary for me when I was quitting Fortune was I'm scared to tell my boss. I'm scared how people will react. I'm scared how my college professor will, whether he'll be disappointed in me. Dangerous though, is in 20 years, me still being at my boring full-time job, being like, damn, I wish I had started that brewery or that profile or whatever. Um, that's dangerous because then you're like, it gets into identity and whatever. Once you get through all the scary stuff of like putting in your two weeks notice, you're fine and you're actually really, really happy. Um, so every decision that I make, I look at it through that uh, framework. It's beautiful. Yeah, I was making some notes there. I like that a lot. It's like <laughs> very, very helpful. Uh, one other framework that you use a lot in your writing that I think is something that as a society, we do a very bad job of internalizing uh, and that journalism does a very bad job of as well, not your journalism, that's why I'm asking you about it, uh, <laughs> is Hanlon's Razor. Could you? discuss that concept and why it's so important for good journalism and like um, why you integrate it into your pieces. So, uh, Helen's razor. I think that, I think it's kind of like what I was mentioning earlier with when I'm interviewing someone and I'm like, Oh, I interviewed a few people who, um, were kind of employees that, you know, Kyle fired and I'm only listening to that. Um, perspective, I'm willing to write a narrative around something that's actually inaccurate. So the way to get to the truth, in my opinion, is to talk to a lot of people and get, um, 
and get as close to the truth as possible, which is really, really hard when you're writing a profile because everything's subjective, right? Um, Hinlon's razor basically is do not attribute to malice what you can attribute to negligence or stupidity or whatever. Um, so I've, I've written about this where I've used it in my everyday life where um, basically it's when you have a relationship with someone or whether it's family or whatever, a lot of times you get into these petty arguments and it's, uh, I think Charlie Munger basically, what was the quote? But it's okay. Basically, it's like um, if somebody if somebody uh, knocks down the glass and you're like, "How dare you!" Like this is a new carpet. You're attributing it to something malicious, right? But uh, when you realize it's an accident, it's not as serious. And I think like in journalism and in everything, um, you can kind of start with a framework of like, "I'm gonna attribute this." to ignorance rather than malice, and it makes your life like a hundred times easier. <laughs> That's something that Lewis has repeated to me over and over and over again throughout the last year. And uh, yeah, it's great. I think, you know, you'll send a DM to somebody and they won't respond. And it's like, they're just busy, dude. Like they're not, they don't hate you. And so uh, right. that was a big hurdle for me to get over. And it's something that I think about all the time as well. Um, but along those same lines and the Charlie Munger idea, what are some of the most important cognitive biases or mental models that you learned uh, in profiling him other than? Um, oh, yeah. Man. So uh, for Charlie Munger, I really like the his inversion um, framework where mm. it's like this has come, actually this has been very good in marriage, as he said uh, in that quote, he says basically like when when uh don't when you get married or when you enter a new relationship or whatever don't ask yourself like how can i be the best spouse ever like what can i do instead ask yourself like what are the bad behaviors that lead to divorce that i can avoid and that actually mm. makes it simplifies it so much and makes it so much easier um to have a good relationship because you're not like striving for these crazy things if you can just avoid the really really bad um that would really help and if you literally google uh top reasons for divorce it's like infidelity um like financial reasons, like that kind of stuff. So if you can kind of take care of those, you automatically make your relationship much better just by doing that. That's really smart. And speaking of marriage, you're coming up on your one year anniversary. Uh, I know that you wrote that very popular piece about uh, <laughs> the 100 couples, 20 secrets. Uh, is there anything that you would add after a year of marriage? Any secrets to, yes. to a successful relationship? <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, those those were a lot, and they were very specific, some of them. Um, there's one I didn't include that I learned later that I, like, absolutely swear by. Um, so Cat Cole is brilliant, <laughs> and she shared uh, with I, – I, I think I heard this on a podcast, and then I, I talked to her about it. But the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, my God, that's so smart. She was basically like, you know, a lot of people celebrate their one-year anniversary and they wait until that moment to kind of be like, wow, look at all the things we've done together, whatever. Instead, um, her and her husband for so many months have been doing these like monthly check-ins in which she has like 10 or 15 questions that she lists. 
that her and her husband go through every single month on the date of their anniversary. So uh, for me, it's July 11th. Yesterday would have been the check-in, right? May 11th. Yep, May 11th. So um, it would be 10 months. So every single month you go through each question, both people answer it. And it's so helpful because it raises things that you would have never normally taken the time to talk about. So for example, one of the questions is in the last month, what is something that I have done that maybe I can like not do as much in the next month? Uh, or what is one goal that you have coming up that I can help you with? And it, it's just like, um, it makes you realize like you're on the same team and you're striving towards the same goal. And like, how can you practically get there instead of just being like, Oh, look, we've been married for five years. Like how great it brings up all these things. So they don't, the problems don't pile up until the end. You can solve them as you go month after month. Writing that down. going to definitely <laughs> do that with my girlfriend. Kyle's <laughs> calling his girl, girlfriend right after this podcast. Yeah. And is, is someone, I think like, um, I think it was important for Kat and her husband because I believe both of them come from families with divorced parents as do I. Um, and I think you just kind of have like a different mentality towards that stuff where you really, really want to make sure that things are good and healthy and not let things pile up because, uh, you've seen what it can do. Right. So I think like you don't take it for granted. <laughs> Well, that is a great tip. Thank you for sharing that. I have yeah. a different question about the profile and the content and the profile specifically. Uh, one fun thing about talking to writers and content creators is there's every single one I've ever talked to says, I never predict what pieces are going to pop off. Uh, this one I thought was going to be amazing, got no attention. Then this one I just sent out. Uh, so I have a question for you besides the one with the rock, because I know you've told that story a lot of times of how you just sent it out on Christmas and it blew up. What's another one that was kind of an unexpected big winner? So actually that relationship one, and I have a, I have a thought about that because, um, here's the thing. So please, I think yeah. the biggest mistake that a lot of traditional media companies made is when something, when they saw success and a lot of clicks on something, they were like, got it. Let's move in that direction. Let's cover that more. In 2016, Donald Trump had a 2% chance of winning but he was overcovered for a candidate that only had a 2% chance of winning. And that is because every media organization saw, oh shit, like people are clicking on this. They love this. They, everything you put Donald Trump in the headline, you knew it was going to pop. So my thought in that was when I published this relationship article, that had nothing to do with the profile. It was not like, it, it was basically like I was getting married and I asked people, Hey, do you have any good advice? And I got so many responses that I decided to turn it into a separate article. If you look at the profile stats, it's the top performing article ever, even though it's not at all like what the profile stands for, or it's not like part of the, the mission of the brand. So I always say that like, you need, when you start something, a podcast, a newsletter, a company, you need to have like an overarching brand mission. And you need to know like, this is what overall I cover and the things that will go under this brand. When I publish something about relationships, even though it did so well and it continues to perform well, you have to understand that the internet loves relationship content. 
And you kind of like, you note that, but you put that in a bucket and you don't let it um, cloud your judgment in the future. So I think, yes, listen to your audience and listen to your leaders and give them more of what they want, but don't over rotate and kind of compromise your values because one piece of content did so well. And you know why, it's not like it's a secret that people love relationships. So if you know that, you can maybe like profile more people who are relationship experts or something to give those people what they want. Uh, but understand that like, you don't have to compromise on your values to satisfy the internet. Yeah. I think it, uh, that it came at a good time too. I, it was July quarantine, a few oh, months yeah. of being together, uh, it probably served as a good refresher for a few marriages <laughs> out there. Um, exactly. well, I'm trying I could to ask the opposite question. Okay. There you go, Lewis. The opposite question is, do you have a piece that you're super, super proud of, an incredible story that just really did not get the attention that you thought it deserved? Ooh. Oh, my God. So there was one dossier I did on uh, Chris Hadfield, who's an astronaut that I thought would, like, be so well-liked and, like, I, I genuinely spent a lot of time on it and it just did not, people did not react to it the same way that I thought. Um, but uh, not in, hmm. Like, I, I think a lot of it is like, uh, I have to decouple how much work I do and the thing that I feel like I like poured everything into uh, with uh, people didn't like it. I, cause I'm like, Oh, if I spent so much time on it, like there'll be a direct correlation with like shares and page views and whatever. Um, but because a lot of the stuff that I write is behind a paywall, I have to kind of manage expectations that like, yes, like people may really enjoy it, but they may not, it may not lead to new signups cause they can't see it. So a lot of times it's like trying to decide between, um, like, let me spend like three days on this and then how, like I'm pour all this time into it and then be disappointed about the result. Uh, I think it's like understanding that there's a, there's a, it, it doesn't always have a direct relationship to it. Well, I say let's transition now to the last couple questions we have for you. We're running up on time. So some awesome. kind of faster rapid fire questions. Uh, so I'm sure you're in the top percentiles of people that have read greatest number of biographies just by the nature <laughs> of your work. Uh, so do you have a couple recommended biographies for a lot of people like this podcast? You also like to read books, just like some great books could be audio as well. Yes. Um, Anthony Ray Hinton, the sun does shine. It's about a man who spent in Alabama, uh, who, um, he was, uh, poor and black in a time where Alabama just, you know, they were just trying to get somebody to be responsible for a crime. He spent 30 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. And he wrote a book about it. And the book is so, inc I mean, it's, it's one of the best I've ever read because it kind of, um, the fact that this man did not see himself as a victim and he like did the most he could out of being on death row, um, incredible. And uh, one, of, one tidbit from this is actually, so he, there were like 15 men on death row, right? And he was next to one um, and they became best friends, but they couldn't see each other, obviously. And then he found out that the guy next to him, who like, they had a book club together. They like, you know, were very good friends. He was actually, um, 
in the KKK, and he was in there for like killing young uh, black teens. And Anthony Ray Hinton was like, oh my, like what? But then he was able to change his mind about race and all this stuff um, just by being friends. It's an incredible book. And then um, another one is, uh, I just finished this one, uh, based on a recommendation by Morgan Housel, who I really like. Uh, it's called um, The Choice, and it's by Edith Eva Eager. Uh, she um, is a Holocaust survivor. She went there when she was 16, lost both of her parents. Uh, her and her sister made it out. Then she moved to the United States and became um, a psychotherapist, like specializing in PTSD. Her, I mean, it's it's like it's a memoir slash like she explains some of the patients that she sees and what they struggle with, and you kind of understand like at the end of the day, all humans are like traumatized by something. Uh, and she does a really good, really good job explaining it. It's a very good memoir. And let me think of a third one. Oh. Um, Okay, this one, I don't know why I'm only like, I don't know why I'm only recommending like these tragic stories uh, because, <laughs> because this third one is about a journalist who, um, it's called A House in the Sky. It's a really heavy book. I don't recommend you read it if you're not in the right emotional state, but she was a journalist who went to Somalia and was held captive for a year. Um, and tried to escape and like a lot of things happened uh it's a crazy crazy memoir that was also really really well written thank you i don't think we're ever going to ask that question to someone more qualified <laughs> to answer it um, <laughs> this next question's a big a big change uh, i'm not sure that you're gonna have a great answer but why do you think that charlie munger hates bitcoin <laughs> i think because um it's the same reason that i hate uh TikTok's not a good example because I recently got into it. It's the same reason I don't get like kids watching people play video games on the computer or YouTube. Like it's he comes from a different generation and he's just kind of he has although for somebody who is supposed to be flexible and malleable in their thinking, I am actually surprised that he's not more curious about it. When you hear his arguments, they are the classic, like, this is used for drug deals and whatever. And it's like, how can you not do a little bit mm -hmm. more? <laughs> um, but I, I just, I, I think that he has a certain view of the world and it's very, very hard to pivot at this point in his life. I think that's reasonable. He doesn't have, he's, uh, he's done, he's done well. He's going to stick to what works for him. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's an old man. Exactly. Yeah. He's an old man. Very, very <laughs> smart though. Still, he's still invited on the podcast. You know, if there's anyone who right. just happens to know Charlie Munger out there, that would be a legendary interview. Uh, so we've talked a lot about people and profiles. Do you have any other just like strange hobbies, strange habits, strange passions that just are like an unexpected compliment to being like a lover of people and their stories? Um, strange habits and lover of people's stories. Wow, this would be a good so question for Pomp. I'm sure, I'm sure Pomp would have a lot of good answers to this. <laughs> oh my god i know um i so okay um so i like <laughs> so i like when i meet somebody like really serious to ask them kind of personal questions and see how they react um i so for example yesterday i interviewed um um jeff immel who's the former ceo of ge He's not very well liked because the share price kind of tanked under his tenure. Um, 
he wrote a, an entire book called The Hot Seat about kind of all the mistakes and the missteps and he took responsibility for a lot of it. But basically like he went through a period of time where people were coming out with like the pitchforks. Like he was not, um, people weren't fans of him and shareholders were all upset. Like everybody was upset at him. And he basically said like, it's really hard to open up the internet and see all these headlines and videos about you and people analyzing you and all this stuff. But he made one comment where he said, uh, he said, um, uh, even through all the turbulence, I'm really lucky because I have a really solid personal life. And, and then he, and then he kind of like breezed by it. And then I came back and I was like, well, can I ask you? Cause he probably never gets asked like, how is, why is your personal life so solid? Cause a lot of really successful people and CEOs don't have that. Um, and he basically was like, I have a really great wife and I keep things private. And he said he does compartmentalize a lot of it. Um, I love like asking these like entrepreneurs and CEOs and whatever. And I'm like, so tell me about your personal life. <laughs> uh, there's some wild stories out there, but I, I genuinely think with our generation, it's changing, but I think that it used to be that success kind of came at the expense of your personal life. And I think people now are choosing partners based on people they can have like a solid, like friendship and partnership with instead of just my husband's hot and that's why I chose him. I think it's more about like, uh, um, like what can we build together and you're smart, I'm smart. Like we're both curious people. Whereas I think like older generations, you don't exactly see that. They're a little less practical. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I have a question. So when you immigrated from Bulgaria and you went to Atlanta, did you uh, go to Clarkston, Georgia? Is that where you? D Clarkston? Mm -hmm. No, uh, we lived, we lived. The reason I asked that like, oh. is because my sister worked at a uh, refugee camp basically in Clarkston. It's in the middle oh. of Atlanta and it's the most diverse square mile in America. Um, and no, I didn't know they've about got that. like Yemenite, um, people like Sudanese people. And she huh. went there and, and lived there for three months in college and like was writing reports on, on these people and running a day camp for them. Um, so I didn't know if it was like you came there. I didn't know. I, you know, off chance. No, no, it's no. It's really I mean, incredible. You should look it up though. Yeah, I will look it up. I've never heard of that. Um, no, we moved to a neighborhood that literally was like where all the other Bulgarians moved. It was in a bad part of Atlanta <laughs> in DeKalb County. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, it took us a few years to, to leave there, but it was, it was interesting. So I will see if I can squeeze in this, this last final question, yeah. because I'm curious. Uh, I know we talked a lot about process oriented goals and this happens on like half our podcasts, uh, because a lot of process minded people end up being successful, believe it or not. But what are some of the goals for yourself for the profile or some other things kind of in the works? Cause you're a year, roughly a year into being on your own, doing this, you have a lot more autonomy since you're not in the full-time position. What's like the goal for yourself and your media brand and, and all of that over the next yeah. say one, five years. Um, I know. So I, I literally wrote a whole thing about like how I've stopped thinking about, stop thinking of life in increments of five years because it's literally never worked out the way I thought. And then I end up being like, oh, I didn't reach my five-year goal. And it's like, no, like, because it was stupid. Um, I think, 
the, the way I think about it is um, I have like big overarching goals for the profile. How I get there, I have no idea right now, but I'm, I'm trying to put a process in place and systems in order to get there. But one is kind of redefining what a profile means. And I'm not there yet, but I'm actively thinking about like, how can you change what a profile is by truly like getting to the essence of this person without working at a traditional media company. And the second one is um, because I learned this way, because I learned through profiles of people, um, how can I create something where it's more of a school, but not, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a school in the way you think of it, but like a place where people go to learn. Cause I've profiled so many people. It's about like, now can I take their techniques and their uh, stories and distill them into something that people could learn from? That's a beautiful answer. I think it plays well with the very first question we asked you about synthesis. Uh, we're excited to see the profile grow and to continue to follow you. And thank you very much for coming on. Uh, if our listeners want to find you, where should we send them? Obviously the profile. Yeah. Read the profile.com. <laughs> uh -huh. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Polina. Uh, awesome. We enjoyed it. And thank you guys. Thank you. And that wraps up our conversation with Paulina Marinova Pompliano, another amazing interview. Uh, she's just a super interesting person doing amazing things with the profile and, and just generally in life. Uh, my three takeaways. The first thing is just framing things as uh, framing decisions in um, light of the worst possible scenario. And so like, you know, when she was thinking about going from fortune to the profile, it's like, um, you know, what is the worst possible thing that could happen? And when she realized that the worst case just wasn't really that bad, she went for it. And it turns out it's been an incredible decision. And, um, you know, she, she's enjoyed the ride along the way. The second thing is um, something that I, that I, I maybe learned or, or heard of again while I was researching this podcast. Um, and it was a, a quote from Warren Buffett talking about, you know, his biggest investment mistakes. And he said um, something about how his biggest investment mistakes will never show up on a balance sheet because they were the mistakes of omission and the shots that he didn't take and should have when, um, you know, he had all of the, the relevant information in front of him to make that decision. And it turns out that not doing it was the poorest decision that he could have made. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how that relates to this interview. I'm sure it does in a lot of ways, but I think, um, you know, just from researching that podcast and, and hearing that it's something that stuck with me and I'll remember, um, from this episode. And then the third thing, um, was her interesting answer to the relationship audit question or the relationship question. You know, she had this super popular relationships article back in the day when she was getting married. Um, and she said that, you know, just a, a constant recurring check-in, uh, goes a long way in the health of relationship. And, um, you know, that's something that I think that I'm going to implement in my own relationship, um, with my girlfriend, Caroline. I got my own three takeaways, but thank you for sharing yours, Kyle. One is something that you get to do with this podcast, but it's called mentorship at a distance. That's the term I'm giving for it. She is able to have serious inspirational role models that she's never met. So a lot of time on the podcast, we talk about mentors and how important they are and getting one, but you don't have to meet them. You can just read a book and be like, what would the person who wrote this book tell me to do in this situation? How would this inspiring historical figure, let's call him Dwight Eisenhower, handle this specific situation? Uh, 
And studying people can help you learn their decision-making process and you can virtually, theoretically have them counsel you. And that's actually quite helpful. Second takeaway here is called Writers Write Publicly. So this is something really consistent. We've had a lot of incredible writers on the podcast. Nicholas Cole, Dickie Bush, K-High, lots of these people have done some incredible writing on the internet and accumulated a lot of followers. And none of them would have any of their success or any of their other opportunities that have come to them from their writing had they not publicly done it. If you just keep notes in a notebook that's closed, the only people who will appreciate it are 100 years later, if you're Charles Darwin and actually invented some incredible stuff in those notebooks. Otherwise, if you want to be appreciated in your own lifetime, I would suggest writing publicly. Third takeaway here is about writing publicly or doing any sort of online content. Very, very helpful for us to hear talk about in the first two years, she had 5,000 people on her list. And then all of a sudden, the month before we recorded this podcast, she hit 7,000, not 7,000 total, 7,000 new. So we always talk about how we underestimate the power of the exponential. Kyle and I, this is our best month yet in terms of downloads. Not anything crazy where, you know, we had more this month than all the previous months combined, but slow, steady growth. Keep going. Don't stop making content. That's what everyone seems to make the secret sound like it is. If you want to help us get some additional downloads, those are my three takeaways. I would highly recommend checking out one of the additional episodes. You can find it right here in this feed or right on YouTube if that's where you are. Kyle and I make a very intentional effort to not ask about current events. What do you think about XYZ thing that just happened yesterday that, that we're all going to forget about? You would have no idea when these episodes are recorded because they're snapshots about ideas that are timeless. Scroll down in the feed, see what interests you most, listen to some more episodes, and we'd love to hear from you from your feedback on social media. Hit us up online, we're easy to find. Thanks for listening. See you in a week with the next one. Bye-bye.